With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for, for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show into our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference. And uh, yes, indeed, um, good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all of my audience. Whenever you happen to be listening to this live or on the archives, we want to welcome you to another edition to Shattered Lives. And um, I want to remind you that although our, our show is primarily focused on the aftermath of crime, the other side of the coin is crime and tragedy, and tragedy takes many forms. And today um, I have a very esteemed guest, and it's a topic that I've been looking forward to for so long um, because of my previous background in medical speech-language pathology and working with elders, We uh, and uh, because of the fact that we deal with elderly um, through all aspects of our lives. So we are going to be discussing um, Alzheimer's, other forms of dementia, preventative, preventatives, and um, what we can do and to kind of frame the conversation uh, with Pam Atwood. But before I bring her in in just a second, I want to say hello to Delilah, my co-pilot. Good morning there in South Carolina. How are you doing? Good morning. Everything's a go down here. Um, well, I'm, I'm really, I'm really pleased to have this guest on. I think this is an important topic for, you know, not just older people, um, mm-hmm. but also for um, for younger people, for the you know the whole general population. Again, it's something that needs to be discussed more fully. And um, within the general public, I think it's it's so, so important to be informed about the subject of aging and how we can age gracefully or successfully. So I'm happy to have this guest as well. Absolutely. So, um, well, without further ado, let me just introduce Pam Atwood, who is the director of Dementia Services at Hebrew Hebrew Healthcare in uh, the West Hartford, uh, Connecticut area, and she can give us more of a complete description of her background. So, Pam, good morning, and welcome to our family of Shattered Lives radio shows. It's a pleasure to have you. Good morning, Donna and Delilah, and to the whole Shattered Lives following and community. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, it's 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 great to have you, and as we said, this is this is such a, a a vital topic, and I think there's there's so much misunderstanding and there's so much fear around this topic, and because of your expertise, I think you know if we can kind of calm the waters, but with also make sense and and equate people or how maybe they can make reasonable changes in their lives because everyone fears that oh my god i'm I'm right. going to get this disease, so to you know. Absolutely. I was just going to say, I think the fear is sure. the most important thing of what you've just said because yes. we've actually done lots of research studies 
uh, repeatedly now and found that Americans fear Alzheimer's more than cancer, more than heart attacks, more than death itself. So uh, I, I actually started a campaign last year called Face Your Fear so that we can start that conversation. And I'm really very excited that you've chosen to, to address this in your program. Well, 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 we are too, and you know, perhaps you, you you can get into what that campaign is. But could you could you give us a little bit of a, a a biographical sketch in terms of how you got into this field and what you are currently doing at uh, Hebrew Healthcare right now? Sure. So uh, I started as a family member. My grandmother actually started way back. My great-grandmother died when she was 99, and she said, Pamela, don't ever grow old. It's just no fun. And I thought, well, <laughs> gosh, I think we can do something about that, right, Grammy? And um, she was wonderful, and I loved her to pieces, and I loved going to visit her. And my, meanwhile, that was my mom's side of the family, my dad's side of the family. My grandmother, who was the sweetest, most kind, compassionate religious person I'd ever known, um, ended up getting Alzheimer's disease. And at first, as a family, you go through quite a bit of denial, which I've learned since is a coping strategy. We needed her to be okay because it was my grandfather who was really sick, and she was his caregiver. So as a family, we ended up um, eventually after he passed from complications of his diabetes, uh, we ended up learning over the next year that she had dementia. At first, you know, as a family, you think, you know, it's just because he's always harping on her. How could anybody, you know, not get all befuddled with him yelling at her all the time? And he used to say, you don't know what I'm living with. And, Mm -hmm. well, she was growing his insulin, little did we know. Oh. So it's one of those things, getting a diagnosis for Alzheimer's, though, many times it's something that you do as a family in retrospect. It's you know, hindsight, you look and say, oh, that's why she had a hard time lining up the car in the garage three years ago. You know, those kinds of things where you start to put those pieces together and suddenly the picture is Alzheimer's. So I started really as a family caregiver um, in college, fell in love with the field of gerontology, and um, after that worked in, let me see, my goodness, five nursing homes in five years. I, I, we would go from one nursing home and kind of clean it up and get the processes and the policies and procedures all together, you know, this whole new concept of residence rights. My gosh, they have rights? How is that possible? You know, changing that whole culture way back in the day. And then um, from there, became a case manager. Meanwhile, I got my master's degree in gerontology and uh, worked for the Alzheimer's Association for several years after that and have been now working at Hebrew Healthcare almost 15 years. Wow. Well, that's, that's, that's quite an impressive resume, and I'm sure that it, it positions you for, you know, what, what you want to do and, and what your goals may be for the population there because um, by reputation it, it is one of the best in, in our state, and I'm sure, you're, I'm sure you're very proud of that. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Can, can you um, explain for the audience, it's sort of a Dementia 101, I think a lot of people who do not have any sort of a background just kind of link Alzheimer's and all dementias together, and there are many right. other forms of dementia. So can we differentiate those and, and maybe say what the causes and how they might manifest so people know the difference Yes. on a basic so level? First, Yes. A lot of times people think forgetfulness is a normal part of aging, and to some extent it is. Some minor forgetfulness is normal. It's also normal if you didn't get a good sleep last night or if you're under an extreme amount of stress or have too much going on in your life. Forgetfulness is normal. And I always say, it's not really that I forgot. I just remembered late. (laughs) So so this is how we frame things as well. But Uh when forgetfulness starts to have a real significant impact on your daily life, your function, that's when you need to get it checked out. There are lots of different conditions that can cause memory problems, a B12 deficiency, thyroid conditions, um, elevated calcium or albumin in your blood, um, urinary tract infections or upper respiratory infections, some kind of a delirium, especially in the older adult. So many, many different kinds of things can cause changes in your memory or your, or your thinking. Dementia, by definition, means a change of intellectual functions, things like reasoning, judgment, processing, and memory. To be diagnosed with a dementia, somebody has to have a problem with memory plus one other cognitive process. 
Now, like I said, many, many different things about dementia. My favorite question to answer is what's the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? Dementia is the umbrella term. Underneath that umbrella lie many different kinds of diseases. The biggest portion under that umbrella is taken up by Alzheimer's disease. Alzheimer's is the most common cause of dementia. Alzheimer's causes other problems, too. Eventually, as the disease progresses, people might lose their ability to walk or to take care of themselves, to, to process the food properly or to swallow properly. So Alzheimer's is a progressive degenerative neurological disease. And there are lots of other related disorders like um, Lewy body dementia, vascular dementia, et cetera. Um, a lot of times people say, well, how is this compared to, like, senility? Those are the hardening of the arteries. Those are terms that just today don't have any useful medical meaning. What we used to call hardening of the arteries, we now call vascular dementia. What we used to call senility, we now call Alzheimer's-type dementia. Senility, if you look up senile in the dictionary, means aging. So senile dementia just means dementia in an aging person. But sometimes it strikes younger people, too. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I think that's a, sort of a good framework to operate under. And, um, well, you know, go ahead, Delilah. Well, I wanted to ask um, Pam, I'm sure there are certain screening tests for different types of, of dementia, including Alzheimer's. And maybe you can explain how how those screening tests work and what do people, what should you expect to do with the information that you get back from the test? Mm-hmm. That is an awesome question. That's very okay. good. So, and the reason I really like that is because it also relates to a publicly public policy change that changed in the last five years. So everybody who is a Medicare beneficiary should be screened on their annual wellness visit by their physician every year annually. So, um, so what happens, though, is a lot of times physicians feel like, oh, that's such a big conversation. How do I get into it? A screening for dementia can be very quick and very brief. You can – there's – um, quick little screening tools um, like the ADS-8 or whatever. You know, there are these little um, tests that can just ask a couple of questions. My favorite for visually able people is the ADS-COG. Um, and part of that, or the mini-COG they call it, is you answer two or three little memory questions and then draw a clock, like a clock face. And the face has to say a certain time. And that is enough of a screening so that a doctor or, or a trained clinician can look at that and say, there's something more that we need to investigate here. It's not diagnostic, but it'll screen to say whether or not this scans is normal. Two things mm-hmm. I want to say about that. Obviously, if someone has limited vision, um, that's going to be more difficult to complete and to screen accurately. And there are other tests that we can use that accommodate that um, if someone has you know, either legal or full blindness. The other issue is, a lot of people test totally normal, but still can have a cognitive impairment, a mild cognitive impairment. I had a client recently who scored a 29 out of 30 on the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, which is the tool I prefer to use. And the um, the problem was she had so many subjective complaints. She, I mean, clearly has some kind of a cognitive impairment. Her doctor last year had diagnosed her with a mild cognitive impairment based on um, some imaging, uh, but she then couldn't address it because a month after that her husband was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer and has since passed away. So she is someone who, um, and she's she's given me permission to, to share stories, you know, minor stories that are obviously sharing her name. But these are the kinds of um, difficulties in screening for dementia because someone can have another limitation that is going to impair their ability to be tested. And some people are are so cognitively well-developed, so intellectual, and have so many compensatory strategies already that it's harder to pick up that the tests aren't sensitive enough. Right. So it's, And it's not going to be, unless you're in the more moderate to severe stages for people that are untrained, you're not necessarily going to pick that up, correct? The, correct. And, and that's why the screening globally is so important. The more screening you do, the better you get at picking it up. I mean, mm-hmm. I wasn't any good at it when I first started in my career, but you spend enough time with people with cognitive differences and um, you, you be able, you, you're a little more able to pick up um, 
the way someone substitute words, for instance, um, the way that they answer and look at their partner before answering fully and committing to that answer. You know, there are little nuances that you can pick up as a screener. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, we can we can get into the um, actual uh, dementia risk questions that are free from your website if you want to now, or we could do that a little later. Yep. I mean, I guess you have you have certain things that everyone could go on there and just kind of use as a practical guide, and then there are other there's uh, podcasts and other screening tools that I guess are, you know, something that you might have to invest invest, um, invest time and in, in, um, money into to delve deeper. Is that correct? Right. And one of the things that I want to say about that, too, is there are always good resources in your state or municipal communities. Um, one of the things that I do is I teach online classes for dementia care, and I always make my students go find out what are the resources in their communities. Mm-hmm. Every state gets funding under the um, Administration on Aging for municipalities, for area agencies on aging. aging. And these, um, these are wonderful free resources. So you also can call and get online at uh, programs like infoline.org. There are, there's really a ton of information that's available. So you... You might have to spend a little more personal time. I mean, part of the investing financially in, in hiring someone like me or a case manager or somebody, is it, it, it cuts the responsibility of your time to, 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 to do your own research, um, and it cuts your learning curve. But my website that I developed, and I developed it through Hebrew Healthcare, is called agingcareacademy.org. So agingcareacademy.org. And we have developed um, several years ago a free dementia risk screen. And we developed it two different ways, one for you and one for your parent or your loved one. And it really talks about all of the basic dementia risks. This is not the warning signs. So the Alzheimer's Association and other organizations have developed 10 warning signs that are symptom-related, saying this may be a symptom of Alzheimer's. These are your dementia risks. And I developed this because it was personal. My doctor said to me, Pam, your cholesterol's on borderline. Now, I know because of what I do that elevated cholesterol is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. I also know that my parents hate their cholesterol meds. I don't want to go on them because of what my parents have been going through. So my first gut instinct was, well, I'm going to ignore that advice. We're not going to listen to that at all. Well, we're just going to move right along here. (laughs) But meanwhile, in the back of my head, I'm thinking, Dementia risk, dementia risk, dementia risk. I now have three people in my family who are living with dementia, including my 57-year-old cousin who was diagnosed with young-onset Alzheimer's disease. Oh, wow. So this, this runs in my family. So if mm-hmm. I want to minimize my risk, I can't ignore this advice. So I said to my doctor, I understand that this is an issue. What are the alternatives to going on medication? And she gave me some advice. And I chose to take it. That's what this was. This I developed so that people can know what are their risks so they can change the conversations they're having with their medical professionals. So, for instance, and if you go on agingcareacademy.org, one, two, three, four, fifth tab over is the dementia risk screen. This is not, you're, you're not putting information into the computer. It's just a paper and pencil. You a list, right? Have it list, in front of Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. So you understand what are your personal risks and what you can do to change it. Now, some things you can't change. One of them is, are you over 65? That's because, statistically speaking, as we age, you're at higher risk for dementia. But aging is the goal, right? (laughs) I mean, dying young is tragic. Aging is the goal. So, obviously, that's a risk factor that we can't change. But we can change whether or not we're smokers. We can address our sleep issues. We can address depression. If we have a first-degree relative, parent, brother, or sister, with dementia or Down syndrome, we can't change that. But that, again, is one of those risk factors that will then maybe motivate us to take control of the other things we can control. Yeah. There, yeah, and, you know, other things like uh, being treated for cholesterol, high blood pressure, um, mm-hmm. 
you know, your your weight and those kinds of things. And like when we were talking off air um, in terms of going a natural method, and I have very, very mild cholesterol I've had for years, and I've been taking a natural supplement um, that was recommended by an integrated medicine doctor for almost five years. And I just, you know, you incorporate these things as part of your routine, and it doesn't seem to be a problem when the, the, the blood tests come back. So, all the better, you know. That's um, right. So I think, yeah, I think that's a, a very practical thing, and you have to have a good relationship with your your doctor. And but Pam, what do um, I know that some traditionally trained doctors, um, and it's so hard to get enough time to spend to talk with doctors because it's always yeah. about high volume. How do you get them to think out of the box? <laughs> <laughs> well. Um... That's a really interesting question. (laughs) I think part of that is, and and part of this I would answer differently depending on the cohort that you live in. So, for instance, older adults, the the 80 and 90-year-olds that I tend to deal with would never dream of questioning their doctor. Right. And that's changed for the better, thank goodness. You know, my parents' generation, my generation – of course we're going to change, we're going to challenge our doctor. And if we don't like that bedside manner, if we don't think that doctor is up to date on things or if that doctor's not listening to us, we're going to change doctors. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's really important is you have to trust your gut. If your doctor isn't listening to you and doesn't have satisfactory answers, then you need to get a second opinion. So then there are two ways you can handle it. You can either change doctors or ask your doctor for a referral to a specialist. The, one of the specialty areas for cognition, for memory issues, um, are, is neurology. neurology. The other yeah. can be geriatric psychiatry, even if you're not older. Geriatric psychiatrists are specialized in um, the issues about, about the aging brain um, and geriatricians. So... Um, one of the things that you can do is work on getting a consultation for those specific issues. Now, the challenge with neurology is that neurology also is a huge field. I mean, you're dealing with everything from epilepsy to multiple sclerosis to brain injury to Alzheimer's disease. Um, We've now seen, um, probably different around the country, we in the Northeast have a fair amount of specialty neurologists. So we have in Connecticut, one of the large hospital systems here has a whole department of epileptologists. I mean, I had never even heard of that. Epileptologists. <laughs> I didn't know that either. They have wow. nine. They have nine epileptologists in this one um, uh, health wow. system. It's amazing what they can do. So, for instance, I also work very closely with the American Parkinson's Disease Association. There are movement disorder specialists, and they have extra specialty fellowships and training in Parkinson's and related movement disorders. Their ability to treat somebody with Parkinson's is much, much more advanced than a traditional neurologist. So I'm, I'm going to, again, caution people, if you're not getting the kind of answers that you feel are comprehensive, you may need to get even further specialized. Yeah, and your PCP does not know everything, and they should admit that. <laughs> Amen. You know, they can't that's know everything. That's what my doctor says, and then she goes, "Well, that's not my area of expertise." But I, you know, we can talk about this or that. With, you know, they have to be flexible. So I think that's very, very good, good advice uh, with regard to. And again, I see that in in my own mom because and it's generational. They think that person they're very loyal, and they yes. don't want to change to somebody because it's about how loyal they are and how nice they are and what what tr- good treatment they gave. But they don't want to go outside that box. But you have to when it's your health, you know. And that's not a criticism well, of my mom or anybody, but it's it's right. a fact of life, right? Well, sometimes I think what we're seeing and becoming more aware of as, as again, as the general public is the fact that many traditional-type doctors don't treat the root cause of whatever it is that you're ailing from. Um, it's too easy to to write a prescription for this or for that, and they may be right. And, and I'm not saying that that 
you know, that these drugs are bad or, or not working because I do believe that a lot of times it does. However, and I think, you know, this brings me to another question for you, Pam, is can you address in, in your research and, and in the research that you know of, has there been a root cause for dementia or for Alzheimer's that we can say, okay, if, if this is the problem, how can we fix it early? You, those those are great questions, and I and I I have several things in there I want to respond to. First of all, I want to make sure that n- no one out there thinks that we're just slamming doctors, because quite honestly, doctors use the tools they have at their disposal, and they can only do so much in the whatever eight minutes that our insurance companies and our our, our payer sources are going to allow them to use. So if I'm getting paid as a geriatrician eight dollars to see this patient, how much time can I really invest in this? Um, You know, in practice management, a lot of times practices are discouraged from having a population of their or a percentage of their clientele being more than 30% who are Medicare beneficiaries because Medicare beneficiaries are older. They have multiple issues to address, and that can be a time killer and a financial killer for the practice. Those are things that we need to really look at. Now, that is said, um, if I ask my PCP to address all of my aging body issues, it's like asking the guy who built my house to fix my pool. Okay? Does he know <laughs> about pools? Probably. Can he, can he fix everything? Maybe not. Does that mean that he's not capable of building a house? No. Would you ever dream of sending your child nowadays to anybody other than a pediatrician? Pediatricians are specialized in how little baby bodies process their liver, you know, their foods, their 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 weight is, et cetera. Geriatricians are specialized in older livers, in older processing of food and fluids, of older health conditions that, you know, put people at risk. So it really is important to recognize that we always say geriatrics is a team sport. Um, in, in the practice where I work over at Hebrew Healthcare, our geriatricians work very closely with geriatric specialty nurse practitioners, with social workers, with me, with physical therapists who are specialty trained. Uh, my husband's a physical therapist, and he has training in Parkinson's um, therapy and, and all kinds of things. Could he treat a child who has a you know sprained knee? Of course he could. He's still a physical therapist, but he gets special training in these other areas. So if we're going to really take care of our bodies as we're aging, we need to understand that APCP alone may not be all we're going to need forever and ever. Now, let's Mm -hmm. talk about the research. That's part of the other thing. There are all kinds of research studies that are conflicting. So when a geriatrician or a PCP or anybody is trying to do the best that they can, they are human. And there's lots of research out there that says this is good, that's not. And there's other research that says, no, that research is wrong. Keep up with all of that while you're also treating patients and trying to live your own time. Yeah. Can be mm-hmm. more than that. Exactly. Um, let's take the case of medical marijuana. In Connecticut, medical marijuana is now approved for people with Parkinson's disease. I know at least three movement disorder specialists who argue that and say that's ridiculous because the research wasn't done properly and it was politically pushed through. So mm-hmm. there are all kinds of debates that are being held in medical communities about how is the best way to treat one thing or the other. I believe that, I mean, personally, I like to look from many different sources or different approaches. I don't take care of my body just with medicine. You know, it's got to be with other things as well, whether that's for, for anybody, your own personal preferences. Is it yoga, exercise, swimming? Um, is it some acupuncture or acupressure and Reiki and therapeutic touch and pet therapy and laughter therapy? I'm also a certified laughter therapist. You know, these are all things that are are important to take care of our whole bodies holistically. Mm-hmm. Well, no, I forgot it, the it, other question. If it's hard, <laughs> if it's hard for the you know physicians to sort out because it's ever evolving, changing, and disagreeing, then it's 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 that much harder for we as as family members or the general public to sort out. But I guess you have to just be open to to suggestion in terms of here's a menu of things that we can try that we're thinking maybe would be good for your family member. Is that right? That is so true. And at some point in your gut, you're going to know when it's time to stop asking the questions. 
because you can get a different opinion from everybody you ask. You could go to different specialists. You can go to your hairdresser. You can go to the mailman. <laughs> you can go to all kinds of people who have expertise or think they do and are going to share it with you. And what happens then is you have too much and your brain gets overwhelmed. And at some point you think, you know what? I have enough pieces here. I'm going to make an informed decision. I'm going to take this medication that my doctor said, but then I'm also going to do X, Y, or Z. And that's when we start focusing on what's really important, quality of life. So whether a person has Alzheimer's or another condition or is a caregiver, that needs to be our focus. Because we, oh, that was your other question. Do we know the cause? Because the answer is no. We don't know what causes it. Even my dementia risk screen, all we can really do here is minimize our risk. I have people that I've worked with over the years who never smoked, who are very socially active, who are spiritual, ministers in their church, okay, very intellectual, taught psychology at a local college, very physically fit, had climbed to the top of Mount Katahdin with his, with his kids, um, and still got Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, so you can do all of genetic. the things right if you have and the genes, still get right? this disease. Part mm-hmm. of it is genes, yes, but we still don't know. Maybe it's genes plus something in the environment or genes plus something in education or diet. All I know is that every time I hear a local news station say, blueberries may prevent Alzheimer's, I know that there's (laughs) someone at home going, oh, darn it, if I'd only eaten more blueberries, I wouldn't have caused this. No one asks for these diseases. And even if you ignore all of the advice and, and still smoke and still have bad sleep habits and don't get your cholesterol or your weight or your depression checked, it doesn't mean you're asking for Alzheimer's. No, no, and no one deserves it. No one deserves any disability or any malady. But um, can can we maybe walk through, just so people get a sense of if you are diagnosed and, and you, you know, uh, you're you're in the initial stages, you're caring for someone at home and maybe what to expect, and then when they have to sure. be, quote, unquote, admitted to an institutional setting and, and what you will see in, in each stage, just to kind of paint that picture a little bit. We Absolutely. do have about, we've already gone through 30 minutes, so we might have to <laughs> have you back, Pam. <laughs> I'm the classic I'm talking and I can't shut up person. That's okay, me too. <laughs> so go ahead. No. Okay, so um stages. So first of all, a lot of times people are diagnosed at different points in the disease, so it's not like just because you've noticed symptoms that's when you're going to get diagnosed. Some people don't go get a diagnosis until middle stage of the disease. With my grandmother it was middle or late before we actually got the official diagnosis. Um, And unfortunately, there's a new study out from last year that showed uh, more than half of Americans feel like they were never told their diagnosis, and that really is scary. Um, Yes, and and part of that's because it's observational, and so someone notes it in a chart, but the diagnostic process never actually happens. It's just kind of carried through in the medical record, at least it's been what I've observed in in many Mm -hmm. cases. So in the early stages, people can still work, they can still drive, they can still lead normal lives. And that is really important because some of those memory challenges may progress, um, but everybody's body is different and everybody's brain is different as to what what toll that will take at what time. So there are some people who will have difficulty um, planning a party or balancing their checkbook but may still be able to continue to write their Ph.D. thesis. You know, there are all kinds of different, or dissertation, there are all kinds of different ways that people um, decline differently. So the driving thing, though, is one of the things that most families deal with. Uh, Well, all families so far have had Mm -hmm. to deal with. And that can be very challenging because people don't usually forget how to operate a vehicle until the very end of the disease, but that doesn't mean they're safe drivers. And there are some great resources. There are links on the Alzheimer's Association website. I have links also. There's information all over on how to have the conversation about safe driving. But that just, oh, and as a matter of fact, on agingcareacademy.org, I actually mm-hmm. addressed that in one of my videos. So if you go over to resources, mm-hmm. um, videos is one of them, and I have a series of YouTube videos. I believe it's video number seven. Yes, number seven oh, is driving. So okay. video number seven specifically deals with driving, and we I actually had my best friend driving around her car in our local stop-and-shop um, grocery store parking lot, 
and I talk about all of the different cognitive processes that are used that are affected by Alzheimer's and other kinds of dementia that change, even though we know how to operate the car. So it's a, it's a good video. That's good. I'm going to go watch it. Maybe, you'll, maybe mm. I'll put it up. That's, mm-hmm. that's great. Yep, that'd be great. Yeah. So then in the middle stages, someone starts to have more difficulty with some of their um, abilities to function. Uh, so one of my favorite staging tools is by Claudia Allen, and um, she's an occupational therapist, and she, what she did was she used a comparative developmental age. So what she said is if you can imagine the, the developmental milestones of an infant growing into a toddler, young child, tween, adults. What happens, what she did was she took those stages and reversed them because that's kind of what happens in Alzheimer's disease. We go through the stages in the reverse order of normal human development. So you can drive, you can hold down a job, you get to a stage developmentally in your brain where you can no longer do those things. And then you can no longer manage a household safely by yourself and plan dinners. And then you decline further and are are frightened by, you know, noises in the basement, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And eventually in the end stage you need total care and, um, and, and can't even use utensils anymore maybe, but you can still use finger food. So that stage looks at that comparative developmental age. I like teaching that to caregivers because most of them can understand, oh, so I have to respond to her like I did to my 8-year-old. Now, if my 8-year-old thinks I'm treating him like a child, he's going to rebel. No one likes to be <laughs> treated like a child, even my children. Mm-hmm. So we're, it, it, the comparative developmental age isn't to encourage people to treat them like children. We shouldn't. But it helps us understand what they're developmentally able and capable of right. doing. Like the maturity level, the response Correct. level, right? Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Okay. And, and that's important in teaching caregivers because, you know, a lot of times it's very practical things that caregivers need help with. Um, you know, in the moderate middle stages, they'll say, um, well, she refuses to take a shower. Well, part of that is how are you suggesting that? If you go in and say, Mom... Um, it's time for your shower today. Mom's first response is, you're my daughter. You're not going to tell me when it's time to shower. So then the next strategy they say is, Mom, do you want to take a shower? Well, if you ask, then you're saying mm-hmm. my, my options are yes or no. I'm choosing no. And with my <laughs> grandmother, she would say, no, those aren't my clothes. I'm going to wear these same clothes. That I, and we have to go in and steal her clothes while she was in the shower and replace them. We finally figured out if we bought the same outfits, then she didn't even know, and there was no fight, and so we would just lay out the clean clothes. Uh-huh. But um, part of the challenge is offering two acceptable choices. So mm-hmm. if I say to my grandmother, my child, whoever, did you want to take a shower or a wash-up at the sink? Did you want to take a shower or a bath? Now, I'm implying they've got the choice. But either way, yep. they're getting naked and soapy. <laughs> that's true. And that's yep. one of the things that we need to teach. And that's why my Aging Care Academy program, we developed it to train confident caregivers. And that's what that whole video series is about, too, confident caregivers. So is that something that somebody could go in, like if you have a circumstance where you're suddenly put into the caregiver role, you could kind of go in and, and, and pick up a lot of good tips? Absolutely. Not only good tips, but um, I have lessons learned that we've learned from other families. Lessons like make sure, I mean, some of it seems like common sense, but you would believe how not common it is. Um, Make sure that all the guns are secured. Because if they remember, and they're watching the news sometimes, and they think, oh, my goodness, we're invading downtown. This happened actually when I was working for the Alzheimer's Association. And we were um, the... Somebody was invading the downtown of Kuwait. And the gentleman saw that on the news, went up to his attic, got his bayonet, and was walking down the streets here in his little town in Connecticut, picked up by the police because he thought we were at war. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. So we have to even think about things that we don't know. There are copies of keys because they're going to lose their keys. 
make copies of their Medicare and their Social Security card and keep it in a safe place because they're going to lose those kinds of things possibly. And it's so much easier to say, here's the number, here's a copy of the card, get a replacement, than it is to go through the whole process and rigmarole not knowing what those cards numbers were or whatever. Um, and most importantly, making sure that we're giving them the tools they need to progress through early in the disease. For instance, legal and financial planning, um, getting a trusted power of attorney in place, setting out not only the will, but a living will. How does this person want, how do any of us want the end of our lives to be? I need a living will. I need to say to people, my husband knows, don't put me on a ventilator. Don't give me feeding tubes. Don't, don't go to extraordinary heroic measures. But those are my choices. Someone else might choose differently. Right. I will tell you, though, that we also need to be having those conversations with our physicians because feeding tubes are contraindicated, research proves, contraindicated in people with Alzheimer's and advanced dementia. They don't prevent oh. aspiration. And those right. are the kinds of things that our doctors need to help us get that information so we can make an informed decision. And they'll try to pull them out anyway and, you know. Exactly. Right. And, and hurt themselves. The risk of infection. Right. Absolutely. But, you know, the, the challenge, too, when I, I was a dementia therapist is, you know, they forget that they've eaten or they think they've already eaten. And, yeah. you know, in the end stages, you know, and they have it and you can't do anything to convince them that they have to eat, even if it's puree or, or thickened, right. thickened um, things. And it's just, oh, it, I remember, very frustrating. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, I think this is super valuable um, information. Um, in you know, perhaps at at the end in about twenty minutes or so, we can we can give all the references so that people can go on and watch some of these videos and whatnot. But some other things I, I was also interested in knowing is um, can you can you tell us um, with regard to when a person is at home and they're they're functioning well, maybe in the early stages, how do we transition to that point where Okay, definitely institutional care is needed, and how does a, how does a family nav- navigate that and and come through the other side without, you know, uh, you know it's it's so horrific and it changes the whole family dynamic. And are there yeah. certain things you recommend in that area? Absolutely. Okay, so there are several things. Um, number one, just statistics. Only seventy percent of people with Alzheimer's disease are still living in the community. Now, I said only because a lot of people don't believe that. 30% of people with Alzheimer's end up in nursing homes. Now, that said, most of the people living in nursing homes have some kind of dementia. But Mm -hmm. most of the people with dementia never need to go into a home. Mm -hmm. Everybody's resources are different. Um, But not everybody needs to go into a home. In fact, our our preference is to keep people out of nursing homes. Mm-hmm. Keep them home. It's, now, that said, it's, it's, it's very difficult for families. Uh, we know that one in three seniors dies with Alzheimer's or another form of dementia. And for each one of those, they have, on average, three caregivers. And the caregivers, just to, to put that in perspective, in 2015, and these are Alzheimer's Association facts and figures, more than 15 million caregivers in the U.S. provided an estimated 18.1 billion hours of unpaid care. If we put dollar signs on that, that just to give you some perspective, that equals eight times the annual revenue of McDonald's. So you think about McDonald's hamburger, you know, the, the, the McDonald's fast food, the huge revenues they bring in every year, eight times that is the value of the unpaid care provided by caregivers for with Alzheimer's and dementia. Well, is so, there, are there any financial resources that, um, that caretakers, right. long-term right. caretakers can tap Very into? Limited. Can tap Very into. limited because mm-hmm. – this is a disease that is a chronic condition, so most of the care is not covered by Medicare. Um, there are aid and attendance um, benefits for veterans, depending on um, if they served you know, in wartime. And even if they had, I don't remember how many um, years or, or months they had to be in, but um, it, it can be like just one month of that 
stint during wartime. So there are aid and attendance benefits. There are some people have long-term care insurance policies. And right. other than that, they're private resources. The Alzheimer's Association and other organizations, um, I know the Alzheimer's Association does um, usually have some kind of respite grant. Um, and then in our state, and I know in, in probably other states as well, they've advocated for respite programs. So in Connecticut, I know we have an Alzheimer's respite program, and that provides, um, I'm, I'm not sure how much, maybe $3,000 a year for respite services. And, and it doesn't have to be uh, in-house overnight care. It can supplement day programs or um, part of your assisted living while you have to go to your granddaughter's bar mitzvah in Florida, whatever it is. So everybody's a little bit different as to what resources they have available, but most of it is out of pocket, the amount of care. Family caregivers spend more than $5,000 a year caring for someone with Alzheimer's. That means they're missing a vacation. For some of them, it means they're going hungry. So, and oh, another thing just on the statistics, Alzheimer's disease kills more than breast cancer and prostate cancer combined. It's incredible. Wow. It really is. It really is. So our goal is to keep people at home. It's much less expensive for our donor dollars because nursing homes cost on average about $14,000 a month, and that doesn't even include your meds. Mm-hmm. So most people end up on Medicaid, which means our tax dollars are supporting that. So as the baby boomers age and more and more of these folks are needing more and more care, we've got to find alternatives to nursing homes. So part of that is assisted living. Part of it is home care. But we also need to make sure that folks are trained. The transitions happen slowly. In our family, it started with, you need to come help us with our taxes. And then it was, can you mow the lawn? And then it was, can you do the grocery shopping? So it's, it's not like, unless someone has a stroke, it's not like you all of a sudden are a full-time caregiver. When someone is first diagnosed with Alzheimer's, they may not need any support. And they're going to be putting together their own support team with whichever son or granddaughter or niece or nephew or neighbor they can for different kinds of assistance that they need. But over time, more and more care is needed. One of The first video actually on that video series is when is more care needed. And I talk specifically in that video about um, what are the signs that somebody needs more care? What are the what are the symptoms that the current system isn't enough, isn't adequate? And, and that's really important for families. When I stage someone, I don't just tell them what stage mom or dad is in now, but I tell them what's coming next. Two reasons. Number one, they know it's normal in my world. It doesn't freak me out when someone all of a sudden starts peeing in a plant. And it, 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 I get this call all the time. Well, they're they're peeing in inappropriate places. I'll say, well, tell me that. What's what's going on there? That is really someone trying to be continent. They can't find the bathroom. Mm-hmm. So when we reframe some of that, again, that's normal in my world, but that's not normal in the general run-of-the-mill caregiver family world. So part of talking to a specialist is finding out what is something that is impossible to treat, and what is something that we can modify the environment slightly and make that behavioral problem go away. So that's part of how that all that adaptation happens. Every family is different as to what they can handle living in the home. We did eventually have my grandmother admitted to a nursing home, and for us there were two triggers of what we just couldn't handle in our family anymore with three teenage daughters in the house. One of them was the incontinence, and the other was choking on food every night. And oh, every yeah. night you're enjoying your family dinner, wondering if you're going to have to do Heimlich on your grandmother. Yeah, um, that well. became too much stress, too much stress. And she did great at the nursing home. It was um, not always a fabulous experience. Um, nursing homes are only as good as the human beings who work in them. And That's right. Every, I hear good and bad about every single one, including our own. Um, but it's it's one of those challenges that you become a different kind of caregiver. You don't give up completely giving being a caregiver. You do have to be the daughter again or the son again, but you still have to be an advocate. And you, I mean, do you do you espouse to the, you know, it's sort of that mantra that you 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 become the parent and they become the child. I mean, it's role reversal. I mean, in some aspects. 
You know, that's a great question. It's very, very common for popular media to push that, yes, that you become the parent and or, or the, the old adage, you know, um, twice a child, once an adult. The challenge with that is that it's really a role violation, and that's actually what I did my master's thesis on. This oh. whole concept of, um, so wow, you, you really asked a great question. Um, <laughs> the whole concept of parenting your parents, in some ways it's similar in that you have to anticipate all of their needs. And that means you have to be in someone else's brain. So in that way, yes, it's much like taking care of children. I have to know when my daughter comes to me and says, Mommy, I don't feel good, that it's probably because she's been cuddling with the dog too much and she's allergic or she's dehydrated or she's overtired or whatever. That doesn't mean I'm going to say, now, now, Charlotte, you know, I, to my mother, it's going to be different in how I respond. When I start to treat my mom like my daughter, then I'm going to have that role violation, and that's where those challenges are going to come up and the resistance because she may not remember my name, but she always knows that I'm not her mother. So one of the things that we try to do is look for a different way to communicate with people. And those communication strategies and and the trainings that we give to caregivers help a great deal so that they don't come into that role violation. But in a way, it's similar to parenting your parents because of, of the level of, um, of anticipation that we have to do, especially in those later stages. Yeah, definitely. That's, that's great. Uh, can you give us, like, one, like, concrete example of, of what you might, you might, you might teach in, in that situation where you're not, you're still being respectful and you're not violating that role, but yet you're doing what mm-hmm. you need to do? Yeah. So, um, I, we use a lot of different coping strategies. Sometimes we use deflective humor. When my grandmother um, went through, uh, we were in the, a library in um, her hometown, and at that point I was uh, about 14 years old, and it was me and my two younger sisters going to the library with Graham. And we went through, the, we were in the basement, and there was, or the lower level, and there was this big glass door that said, do not enter, alarm will sound. Now, as of, she, of course, goes through it and blam, 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 all of the alarms. And, of course, mm-hmm. as a 14-year-old, you could just die from embarrassment, right? Right. Um, but we could do one of two things. We could sit there and parent our parents and say, now, mother, why would you go through that? You don't need to go through Come over here. Nope, don't go through that door. And that's mm-hmm. going to be humiliating and awful and make me feel terrible and make her feel terrible and make everybody else around us uncomfortable. But what we did was we used deflective humor. We use humor a lot in my family. And what we did was we kind of redirected her by by having her come with us and say, what do you think they keep in there? Maybe that's where they keep really dirty books that the librarians read after hours. You know, And we <laughs> kind of made light of it without yep. making her dignity be totally demolished. Um, protecting their dignity is really important. One of the other ways that we um, do it is by suggestions. So if mom is going outside and she forgets to wear her coat, you don't say, mother, you've got to wear a coat. You didn't wear your coat. Mother, come get your coat. Mother, come get your coat. Then you say, oh, mom, here, look, I've got your favorite coat for you. So then it's, you know, or gee, mom, I forgot to get your coat. Oh, my goodness. Let me go get it. So that's yeah. my issue. It's not, not putting them issue. on them. Right. Exactly. Absolutely. They sound like, you know, a lot better strategies. And you may happen upon these things through trial and error, and there's a lot exactly. of, but 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 why struggle if you've got some of these other answers that, that will work better for your family member, you know? And, um, and that's what it really is. It's about cutting that learning, learning curve by others. I mean, the benefit of having so many million, five million Americans living with this is we now have 15 million Americans that we can all learn from in those caregivers and those caregiving experiences. The Alzheimer's Association runs fabulous support groups. Now, every support group's a little bit different, but try them because the different dynamics of the group or the group facilitator, you're going to find one that really resonates with you. Also, the educational classes that they offer, free seminars on everything from legal and financial planning to um, communication strategies, Alzheimer's 101, end-of-life care, everything. Are these, are these typically, at, you know, I've heard, well, 
well, that's nice, but I'm caring for grandma and I can't leave, so I can't go join this group. I mean, is right. there like flexibility in terms of when they may be offered or yeah. uh, people that can sort of babysit while you go to your mm-hmm. support group? That's very needed. Some communities have that. So, for instance, for my support group, our day program does offer respite for folks if they want to have their family member come in and stay in the day program while we have our support group. So some communities do have that. If you call the Alzheimer's Association, you can find out about those resources. And at the end of the show, I want to make sure I give you that phone number. um, Absolutely. um, And then I'm just keeping notes of what I want to make sure I wrap up with. Um, The other thing is that there are now all kinds of opportunities online. So there are Alzheimer's forums, there are online Alzheimer's support groups. Um, We are now actually, for the Parkinson's Association, we're going to start a Parkinson's virtual support group, which is using one of those, like, go-to-meeting kind of formats, Mm -hmm. secured, so that we can all be online together. Um, So there are all kinds of new things, and technology is really making our world um, much more flexible in being able to meet diverse needs. So whether that's multiple languages or someone who's very rural, I mean, we've got clients in, the, in, in America who, you know, are three hours from their closest support group. I mean, that's just crazy. We've got to be able to use technology to give them the support that they need so they don't have to learn everything by trial and error. Yeah, absolutely, because a lot of times one of my questions, no matter who we have on the show, is we live way out in the boonies, we don't have a co- or we don't have a computer, we don't have financial resources, how do we still address, you know, these things for for that for that group of people, of which there are many. There are people that may have a cell phone, but maybe they don't have a computer, or they, Correct. you know, whatever it is. I mean, I don't know. We can't. We try the best we can, but to address those people, um, do you have any other suggestions if they be online but yet need these resources? Yes. Try your faith community. A lot of times um, different faith communities will have different um, caregiver ministries or support Mm -hmm. ministries, and you'll be able to get either friendly visitors or at least some support or telephonic help. There are all kinds of resources out there. And like I said also, 211, info line. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, that's now a resource that's available to everybody in the U.S., so that we can actually have um, counselors available to help support people uh, in in other kinds of ways. So there are lots of different resources out there. Wow. Well, Barbara's just going to look. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, I, this has been a wonderfully informative hour, and I would like to give you an open invitation to come back and discuss other things more in depth because I think we've just touched the surface. So consider yourself invited when, when you'd like to come back. Um, would would you like to give us some information with regard to how people can access the the videos in particular or any other things, contact information for you? Maybe you sure. you could refer them if they're in another state. And, you know, I feel very valuable to have you here now because I can access you. But in other states it might be slightly different. Well, actually, we do have um, a number of resources. So the agingcareacademy.org website has all of our resources, and that includes our online classes. I do actually consult all over the country. Um, The good news about not being a licensed clinician like a LCSW or or a nurse or anything is I'm not limited to state lines. So I um, do have clients all over the country. So Mm -hmm. people can call me or email me. All of our information is on that website. And, I mean, that's going to be my direct. You're not going to have to go through hoops. It comes to my desk in my office. And I'm addicted to email. So you might as well email me. (laughs) My email is patwood, with one T, at hebrewhealthcare.org. And that's on the website, too. The other resources I want to make sure people have are the 800 numbers. The Alzheimer's Association has a helpline that's available in um, 33 languages. It's available 24-7-800-272-3900. Again, 800-272-3900. And since I did mention them also, the American Parkinson's Disease Association, 800-223-2732. Great resources there as well, 800-223-2732. Wonderful. Well, 
I, I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I think this has been so, so very valuable. Delilah, do you have, do, do you have some uh, parting comments to offer? And we want to extend another invitation to like to come back in the future as well. Oh, absolutely. Again, I think we just touched on the surface of this many faceted um, issue and I'm, I'm, just mind boggled already, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's and I'm sure you know, listeners would appreciate learning even more. I think this is an, an issue that needs to be addressed as you have, have started the conversation here on shattered lives. And I hope you come back and uh, we have another one. More yeah. than happy to thank you for the that, opportunity to, to share the information. Well, that's great. Well, I, I will keep in touch with you for sure then. So we want to thank you so much and uh, we, we will be closing out this edition of Shattered Lives until until next Saturday. So we'll say so long. Thank you so much, Pam. We appreciate it. Thank you, Delilah. And we sure to uh, spread the podcast around. Take care and have a good weekend. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.